Today we're in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. We're on the downhill slope of Genesis. And I actually mean that in more ways than one when you hear what we've studied today. It's amazing. All right, so Genesis chapter 29. And before we jump into studying the, the Bible this morning, let's, let's pray that God would speak to us through his word. God, we do thank you again for this day. Thank you for an opportunity to gather together as broken people who serve the whole God, the holy God, the God who has it together, the God who is in control, the God who knows what's happening in this world around us. And God, so often we feel like things are a mess and things are broken and things are out of control. But as we gather here together this morning, we're reminded that you do have a handle on things and that things are in your control. And even though we don't understand how that all works and how that all relates to our lives, we believe that you are the God above all things and you are glorious and you are worthy of glory and honor. And so, Lord, we worship you here together this morning. And as we now, Lord, begin to dive into your word and to study your word and study the stories, the history of of your people on earth, Lord, we see ourselves in them. But Lord, we also know that, that you have something that you want to speak to us today in modern times, right now. This isn't just a history class of looking at things from way back when. These are, are things that matter now, and you have not changed. And so, Lord, we pray that we would understand you more, that we would understand ourselves more in light of you, and that you would guide us and direct us as we study now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So Genesis chapter 29. Um, if you haven't been with us or you've missed a week, I want to try to get you back up to speed. We've been studying through Genesis from chapter 1, in the beginning God created, all the way here to chapter 29. We've learned about God's great promise to a people, the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, the father of faith. And we looked at Abraham's life and we studied his life. And then it shifted from Abraham to now turning to his son, Isaac. And we looked at a lot of what had happened with Isaac. Not a lot in scripture on Isaac, actually. But now we actually come to Isaac's son, one of his two twin sons. We looked at them, Jacob and Esau. And specifically, the the focus of the story turns to Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac through which the promise, the covenant, is going to pass through his line and his lineage. So what we've been looking at here um, for the past couple of weeks is the life of Jacob. And as we saw last week, when Jacob first experienced God, it was very fresh, very different, and not expected by Jacob. Jacob, if you'll remember, was a liar. He was a cheater. He was a con artist. He was a conniving sort of a person that was just in it for himself and figuring out what he needed to do and how he needed to do it. But God, if you remember last week, God intervened in Jacob's life. And last week we studied this incredible experience that Jacob had with God where he fell asleep with a rock as a pillow 
and then has an, an amazing vision of God while he's dreaming. And there's this ladder going to heaven, and God speaks to Jacob in such a real way, in a powerful way, in a transformative way, that when Jacob wakes up, he knows, I'm never going to be the same person again. All right? And so now, Jacob, who, by the way, he's on the run from the rest of his family because he's been exiled, because he ripped off his brother Esau, who's ready to kill him and murder him. And so his dad and mom decide, we got to get you out of here. We're sending you out to the, the family, the, the distant rel- relatives that we have in the east, thousand miles away. We're sending you out there. So Jacob begins this journey. That's where he has the dream. And now we're going to see that he arrives at his destination here in Genesis chapter 29. All right? Now here's the other, the other thing that I, I want to, to make a note of here before we get into what we see here today. Even though Jacob has this new life trajectory after encountering God, he has this new direction he wants to go in his life, what we're going to see about Jacob is that he still has a lifetime of growth in front of him. All right? It's not the sort of thing like we sometimes imagine. We think, oh, I'm going to meet God, and all of a sudden, all my problems will go away. All of my failures and shortcomings will be erased. All of my bad personality traits, all of my addictions, all of my weaknesses, they'll all be wiped out, and everything will be good, and everything will be great, and I'll be able to follow God, yay God. That's how we would like it to happen, but that's not the way it works. Instead, Jacob's at the spot, as we're going to see here, that he's got an entire lifetime of growth that has to take place before he becomes the person that God's created him to be. Do you ever feel that way yourself? A little bit kind of overwhelmed with the fact that, oh man, I still have a really long way to go (laughs) on this journey. Well, don't be discouraged because spiritual growth is a slow process. It's a slow process. I was thinking about not too long ago about planting an avocado tree in our yard because I like avocados. I like guacamole, right? But then as I started looking more and more into it, do you know how long it takes a single avocado tree that you start really small to produce fruit? 13 years for the particular one that I was looking at. 13 years you got to plant this tree and look at that thing, water it year after year before you're ever going to get your first avocado. That's not even a bowl of guacamole yet, guys. Like, that's a long time. Spiritual growth is a slow process like that. You don't just automatically start getting your fruit all at once. But be reminded that God's the one in charge of this process. And he is going to ensure that that happens. We have to trust him and be patient. Now, here's the other thing that Jacob doesn't understand quite yet. He doesn't realize it, but this trip to the east, um, looking for a wife specifically, is going to end up lasting around 20 plus years. 20 years. Now, when he leaves from back home, because he saw is literally going to kill him, when he leaves, he thinks, okay, i got to get out of here for a little while because I've got to let Esau's anger cool. We've got to let some things sort out, and then I can maybe come back to the house. But I don't think he had any idea that this is going to, we're talking 20 years, is where he's going to be out here. Now, it's usually best that we don't know how long the process is for us. 
Because if somebody told you, yeah, you'll be right where you need to be spiritually in about 45 years, we'd be like, forget about it. (laughs) I may not even be here for another 45 years. How is this going to work? We don't know those things. Um, But we have to trust God in the process. And and when we look at some of what we're going to see here today with Jacob, there's going to be some twists and turns that happen that that no one would have expected. And as I've titled the message here today, there's going to be so much drama all right and here you're going to see what i mean let's start by reading the first 12 verses genesis 29 starting in verse 1 it says then jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east the place he's been trying to get to and as he looked he saw a well in the field and behold three flocks of sheep lying beside it for out of that well the flocks were watered The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, it is well. These are not shepherds of many words. (laughs) It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it's still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, we begin with kind of an interesting uh, scene here. If you remember the story, if you were with us when we studied Abraham's life, it's a similar kind of thing that's happening here. Abraham's servant took this path toward Mesopotamia. And now the grandson, Jacob, is doing the same. And I'm sure that Jacob knew the family history and the family story. He'd heard this story many times about how Abraham um, sent his servant out there. And if you remember this, the servant came with a huge entourage, had all these camels and all these gifts with him. He showed up out here and he prayed. And if you remember that story, the servant prayed and said, God, I know you're the God of Abraham. I don't know if you're going to prosper this journey. This has been a long trip. This is a really kind of out there big risk because these people don't know us we haven't been here before and now here we are hoping that we're going to stumble into this family and he says i I just pray that you would prosper my journey and so the servant comes to the well and he he says all right the first person that that comes out here and offers to water the camels i'm just going to bet that that's the one And sure enough, as the story unfolds, that's what happens. And the servant's blown away. He's like, there is a God. And he really is watching out for us. And this is amazing. 
And so this whole story that had been passed down of, of finding Rebecca, this, I'm sure, Jacob was very well versed in it. He had heard this. And, and I'm sure that as he was traveling all the way, this thousand miles on his own, wandering through the, the desert, I'm sure he was imagining, you know, maybe that'll be that way for me. Uh, now God has appeared to me, God's speaking to me, God's the one who provided, you know, uh, this arrangement before. Maybe he's going to do the same here for me. He believed God was guiding him, and now he just had to wait and see. And so sure enough, he finds the right place, and just then, at the right time, Rachel comes to water the sheep. Now, the whole thing about the, the stone on the well and what's happening there... Um, there's a few different theories of what this might mean and how this is all working. One of the ideas is that there's a good chance that these shepherds, I mean, we picture these shepherds, I don't know how you picture these shepherds. I have my own way of imagining the, the shepherds here. But what you may not imagine is there's a good chance that these shepherds might have been little boys. Um, and it may have taken five or six of them gathered together to actually move the rock. <laughs> Um, and Jacob here, when he comes in, he's like, what are you guys waiting for? And they're like, well, we've got to wait till everybody gets here so we can all, you know, put our muscles together to try to get this rock off to water the sheep and, and, and all this, right? Now, we know that Jacob wasn't Esau. Esau was the big burly type that we can see, you know, yanking the rock off and going to town. Jacob wasn't this, this guy, but still, Jacob can, can do this. So that's, that's my best guess, I think, of what, what's going on there with this whole who's watering the sheep and why are we waiting um, and that's what takes place now let's pick up in verse 13 so he sees Rebecca he tells Rebecca who who he is Rebecca runs to tell her father and in verse 13 it says as soon as Laban that's the uncle heard the news about Jacob his sister's son he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house and Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, we've met Laban before in the story. Laban was actually here before when Abraham's servant came to find Rebekah. All right? Um, and and when, when that all happened, uh, Laban was really taken with all the expensive gifts that the servant came to bring, Rebecca. Um, if you remember the story, what happened was when Rebecca came out and was offering to water the camels, when she was done watering the camels, the servant said, well, I've got a little something for you. And he pulls out some very expensive gifts, some gold bracelets, a, a nose ring, and he gives her all these things. And she's like, whoa. And she goes back to the house, finds her brother Laban, and, and her father and everything else, and they're like, where did you get this stuff? As we talked about, with the amount of gold in today's dollars, it'd be like $25,000 worth of gold, right? So this was not just some little trinket. They were like, oh, well, hold on. <laughs> and what we saw about Laban there was kind of foreshadowing what we see now about Laban because what we got was the impression that he was kind of an opportunistic guy, um, he, he, he was maybe a bit materialistic. And assuming that he hadn't changed in all those years, we should be a little wary of his intentions. 
Because here he says, oh, you're flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. You, come on in. You can stay here with me. You get this really warm welcome, but it's like, uh, I'm not sure what's going on here with this Laban guy. But he does allow Jacob to stay for a month. All right? And in verse 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, so months gone by, and he says, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. This is important, guys, okay? He loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Remember, Jacob was the heir to all that Isaac, his father, had. He had stolen the birthright from his brother Esau. Then he connived his dad, tricked his dad into giving him the blessing. So everything that Isaac had, and Isaac was a very wealthy man at this point, everything that he had was going to Jacob. But he wouldn't get a penny until his dad had died. All right? So Jacob is in this place in life where he's like, I'm loaded, but I'm really broke. <laughs> I'm going to one day, sometime, somewhere, I'm going to inherit this incredible wealth. But right now, I've got nothing. So, so, so Jacob, he didn't, when he shows up at Laban's house, he's not coming like Abraham's servant came with the camels and the entourage and all the stuff. He's coming by himself. Walking across the desert with some worn out sandals and nothing else to show for it. He's, he, he, he has the heritage. He can talk the talk. He can explain, I really am from this family and this is who I am. But he's got nothing. Got nothing there. And Laban, after allowing him to be a house guest for a month, says, I'm not going to let this freeloader hang out any longer. Like, it's time to put you to work. And so he says, all right, you're going to work. But what are you going to work for? Jacob has no real need for cash. He's like, oh, I don't really want you to pay me. That's not even why I'm here. I've got so much, it's just not here yet. But I've got this fortune that's coming to me. What he needs right now is he needs some room and board and a safe place to hide away from his brother. And what he wants is a wife. And so he asks for Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, we don't know how young Rachel is at this point. But it would not have been unheard of for a young girl, maybe in her like early teens, maybe not even there yet, to be betrothed to be married. She might be 12, 13 years old. So for them to say, all right, well, you're going to work for seven years, um, it's understandable. If this girl's a 13-year-old and he says, you're going to wait for seven years, it, she's not going to marry you until she's 20, okay? So you're going to have to do some, some work here. Um, we don't know. But what we do see is that Jacob, it says Jacob loved her. And as we'll see, as the story unfolds, he will love her for his whole life. 
the rest of his life. But even though that nice little romantic line, and he worked the seven years, and it was as if it was nothing, you know. Even though that seems like it's a simple life, uh, simple little love story here, well, just wait. All right, let's, let's go on. Here's seven years later is where we pick up in verse 21. So seven years happen. He works for Rachel. In verse 21, it says this. It says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. He's, he has invested the seven years. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. All right. So if you're already a little, a little sketchy about Laban, wondering what he, what, he's actually dirtier than we thought. Okay, uh, this is, he allows Jacob to work for him for seven years with an agreement that he would then be allowed to marry Rachel. There was no confusion here. He didn't forget. He knew what was going on. And instead, Laban tricks Jacob and switches sisters. Now, you, have, you can't miss the irony in this because what do we know about Jacob? Jacob's the scammer. He's the one that's always trying to rip people off. He's the one that's doing all the switcheroo stuff. But now the scammer gets scammed. The schemer gets scammed. And, and I presume that Laban had some ulterior motive other than just the well-being of his daughter Leah. Yes, she was older. Maybe she didn't have any prospective suitors. Maybe it was the kind of thing where he's like, well, she's getting up in years. I'm not seeing me marrying her off. I've got to figure out something here. And I've got a feeling that's what Laban was doing, hoping to double his financial benefit of being connected to the rich relatives. Poor Leah was just used like a pawn. That's, that's what happened. And then, on top of that, Laban now leverages Jacob's love for Rachel and cons him into working for free for another seven years. Wow. They're, they're, this, is, this is some pretty heavy stuff. Now, there isn't any commentary or description about what goes through Jacob's head at that point. Nothing. All we get is verse 28. And here's what it says. It says in verse 28, And Jacob did so. He did so. And completed her, work, her week, the seven years. That's what that's referring to. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved her, Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So we don't know what Jacob went through in making the decision to work for the, another seven years for Rachel. Uh, um, 
But that's still, that's a long time. That's, that's seven more years. And not only that, Jacob had to wonder, at least I would have been wondering if I was Jacob, is he actually going to give me Rachel? I've got a feeling he says, for this wedding, it's going to be a morning wedding. None of this night wedding stuff. I'm going to see the woman who comes home with me at night. Um, th- this is what happens, but he does. He, he actually honors the agreement this time. So now, Jacob had not one, but two wives. And he lived for, had lived among these people for 14 years. But these were not blissful years. As we've already seen in Scripture, and here we are, only 29 chapters into the whole Bible, but we've already seen this multiple times. Having many wives is not God's plan. Having multiple spouses, polygamy, it's not God's plan. Dysfunctional relationships were guaranteed. All right? Marrying sisters was not God's desire here. But that happens. He's now married to these two sisters, and it tells us they stay for another seven years. I told you at the beginning, this is, we're loaded with drama. Well, here comes the drama. Get ready. Verse 31. Here's what it says. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, in comparison to Rachel, right? Because he loves Rachel. He hates Leah, essentially. He opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Right? So Leah's thought is, well, I'm the one having babies. Rachel's not, so I'm going to be able to win his love. He's going to love me now. All right? But here we go. And she conceived again, in verse 33, and bore a son. And said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now verse 30, or chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Okay. One of the memories that I have of my grandmother, God rest her soul, was that she used to watch soap operas in the 1980s. Right? 
soap operas. I don't know if you're familiar with these things. Um, I looked up some of the titles of them to bring you down memory lane, if you know any of this. Shows like Dallas, Dynasty, As the World Turns, Days of Our Lives, The Young and the Restless, these kinds of things, right? Soap operas, here's a, here's a useless piece of trivia for you. You know I'm good with those. Soap operas got their name because in the early days, they were often sponsored by soap manufacturers aiming advertisements at stay-at-home moms of the 1940s and 1950s. There you go. What they were were these long-running shows. And when I mean long-running shows, I don't mean just a season or two. They would go for years, decades even, some of these shows. All right, so literally the people, the kids grew up on the, the set of these shows and from childhood to adulthood all the way through. Decades some of these shows ran, all right? And, and what they did is they wove together all of these melodramatic stories of the characters' lives and their love lives um, that stretched into decades. This is the type of story that you would expect to see in one of these soap operas, Right? This is an, an old world novella. You've got two sisters marrying the same man, competing for his attention in a love triangle, trying to keep score, vying for love. You've got this villain, Laban, who's scheming and manipulating people. It's got all the ingredients, everything you need for the soap opera. And really what we see is it was an absolute mess in Jacob's household. For a really long time. For, for, for many, many years. And verse 14 starts yet another episode of the real housewives of ancient Israel. <laughs> Look at verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, that's Leah's oldest son, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. All right, right when you think it can't get any weirder, <laughs> it does. <laughs> And this is the Bible, guys. This isn't some trashy romance novel that we're reading here tonight, today, right? It's not. Um, um, what in the world's a mandrake? All right, uh, here you go. Here's a visual for you visual learners. This is an artist's rendition of a mandrake. It's a, 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 
a Mediterranean uh, plant. Um, it's a Mediterranean root plant. It's poisonous in large quantities. So if you see one of these, you don't want to take a big bite. And it often grows in an almost human-looking form. Do you see how there's kind of like some limbs? Here's actually a photograph, the next one, of one of these things. You see how it's kind of like has these arms and stuff on it? Um, and, and, and so anyway, um, that's, it's this plant. That's what he comes across here in the field. He comes across these, these plants. Now, here's the thing. Many superstitious cultures believed that mandrakes would increase fertility, among other things. All right? Which explains why Rachel was so interested in getting these mandrakes. Okay? Um, that's why she needed them. In Leah's case, it did help with her fertility. But not because she ate them, but because she, she used them to buy time with her husband, basically, right? All right. Now, remember, when we started this whole study through Genesis, one of the things I told you about Genesis, we can turn the lights back up, please. Um, one of the things I told you about in Genesis was it's a book of beginnings. And we learn a lot of different things in the book of Genesis. And one of the things that we learn about is the character and the nature of God. We learn about God. But remember, it's the beginning of the knowledge of God. These people didn't have a complete understanding of who God is, nor had they experienced the transformation of the Holy Spirit. None of that is here yet for these people. Humankind would not know the complete revelation of God until Jesus appeared in the flesh. He is the one who brought clarity and focus on the nature and the character of God. Even through the whole time of the law and the prophets, as people began to understand more about the holiness of God and who God was and how they were supposed to live, and, and he gave them these parameters and these laws that they were supposed to follow, even then, it still didn't all make sense until, like the scripture tells us, that Jesus, when he came in the flesh, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And he allowed people to truly understand who God is. Jacob and the girls were only operating from what they knew about God. And, and here's what I think is important for us to, to pull out of this here this morning. And that's as far as we're going to go in, in the chapter here today. But we've got to ask ourselves, because there's so many things, God's name gets inserted a lot in all of that messy story. What was God's role in all this nonsense? <laughs> Where, what was God doing here? Because both Leah and Rachel, if you noticed, they dragged God's name into all kinds of things. Oh, see, God did this. Oh, God did that. Well, God's not letting you have kids because he wants me to be loved. You know, oh, well, God's letting me have kids now because I did. And there's, this is happening all through here. Now, we know it was God's will and it was God's plan that this family line would multiply and grow. That was part of the covenant. He says, your children are going to be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. I don't think God was planning on making that happen all in one generation. <laughs> but so far, in these 7 to 14 years, Jacob now has, if you weren't keeping count, 11 sons and one daughter from four different women. That's what we just read through here, guys. <laughs> That's a lot of kids and a lot of, yeah, happening. The text clearly says that God was paying attention. God was paying attention and even intervening in some of what was taking place. 
And we know God is involved in every new life that comes into being. All right? Now, whether that life was planned, whether that life was scheduled um, or not, God is involved in every new life that comes into being. But much of what is attributed to God here by these ladies is presumptuous. And I want you to understand that this story is not meant to serve as an example for how we're supposed to live a godly life. All right? So change your, your idea if that's what you were thinking. It's a soap opera with a bunch of people trying to get their way and satisfy their flesh. That's what's going on here. It's two sisters are in a, a you know, winner-takes-all kid competition <laughs> is what's happening here. And Jacob is just chasing as much sex as he can possibly get. That's what's going on. And they all claim that God's on their side. That's what we see in here. So let's talk now as we finish up here this morning. Let's talk about understanding God's will. Because that's something that all people, especially people that want to follow God, that's what they want to understand. They want to say, well, what is God's will? How am I supposed to follow God? How am I supposed to know what he's telling me to do? There's so many things, distractions in this life. There's so many paths to choose from. There's so many different opportunities. How do I know what God's will is? How am I supposed to understand it? And I think that we need to learn to be careful when it comes to interpreting God's will. This is why. Because we often claim it's God's will when it turns out how we want, and it's not God's will when it doesn't. But what have we done there? What we've done is we've confused our will for God's will. If it works out just how I planned it, oh, obviously that's God's will. If it doesn't work out the way I wanted it to, oh, there's no way. That just obviously wasn't God's will. Now, sometimes that might be the case. We might sometimes, you know, get lucky. But that's not always the way it works. God is not our genie in a bottle and just because we get our way doesn't necessarily mean that's God's will. Okay, so here's where we have to go with this. I'm going to help give some nuance to understanding God's will. And the first thing we want to talk about is God's ultimate will. All right, that's his, the big picture will of God. God's ultimate will is guaranteed to come to pass. It is going to happen. God's ultimate will will occur. One day, he will make all things new and put all things right. Every injustice will be accounted for. Every wrong will be corrected. But in the meantime, many things will happen against God's will precisely because it is God's will that we would have the freedom to choose in this life. Okay, do you see the difference here? It's important. God's ultimate will, it's going to happen. But in this life, there's going to be things that go against his will because it is his will that we have the ability to choose. And we don't always choose wisely. It is never, here's some examples, it's never God's will that an innocent child is taken advantage of. Never. That's never God's will. But it happens. It is never God's will that a person would be raped or murdered. But it happens. 
It is never God's will that a person would die in a tragic accident or a drug overdose. That's not God's will, but it happens. These things happen. God is present. He's overseeing all things. He is sovereign, yet in his sovereignty, he allows human beings to even alter the course of history. Sometimes he intervenes, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he heals those who are sick. Other times he allows them to die. And I know this is hard for us to process. We are finite human beings with limited brains. We want him to do what we want him to do, but we have to remember he's God and we are not. And the God we worship and the God we serve is above and beyond the past, the present, and the future of this whole fallen world. So how does a Christian then discern the will of God? What do we do with that? How do we apply that and, and work that out in our lives? Do we just say, well, his ultimate will will take place, so I guess we just leave it up to fate or chase after destiny. Is that what we do? Knowing that someday he'll work things out? No. No, that's not how you do it. And I'm going to give you three things here, um, three ways that we can discern the will of God. The very first one that we have to do if we really want to figure out what God's will is, the first thing we must do is we must place our lives in God's hands. That's step one. If you want to know the will of God and follow the will of God, you need to be God's. You need to say, I choose to follow after you. I'm giving my life into your hands. And if you're not starting from that place, you're going to get lost. It's just the way it is. You're not going to, you can wander and every once in a while you might hit it lucky, but you're not going to follow God's will if you're not in his hand. You can't. So the first thing we do is we place our lives in God's hands every single day and we entrust ourselves to his care. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 27 to 29, he says, my sheep, those who are mine, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you put yourself in the Father's hand, you will not be snatched away. But you better start from there. If your life is in God's hands, then you are safe. And from that relationship, we, then, we do pray. And we express our will to God. We let him know what it is that we want. But the second thing that we have to do is that we have to then surrender our will. We have to surrender our will. And we say like Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And it's from that place that we're best positioned to receive the guidance and blessings of God in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, that you're holding on to your way, your thing, they'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want God's will in your life, you have to be willing to surrender your own will and receive his will. 
when we follow Jesus, we become transformed. You know, as a, as a church, I don't know if you know this, the churches all share really the same big mission. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus sent his people out, and he sent them out to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what we're all to do. Everyone who calls themselves a Christian and is, is a believer, that is their big goal. But then what about individual communities of churches? Who are we as a church? The gathering of people that we're right here. Well, we've, we've got a vision, and I'll put it on the screen here for you, um, a, a vision statement of who we are as a church. And from day one as a church, this is what we've described. We want to become, I'll see if I can do it from memory, a, a healthy, vibrant Christian community that's devoted to Jesus Christ and his transformation of our lives as we learn to love one another and our community for God's glory and our fulfillment. You see how this all works together? What it is, is we're people that want to live a healthy Christian life. And by doing that, we have to be changed. We have to be transformed. Romans 12.2 says that very thing. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? This is a description of someone who's choosing the will of God over their own will. And in that process, they're being changed and they know his will. If you want to know the will of God, put yourself in his hands, surrender your will to him. And finally, the last thing here is even if we know God's will, there's a difference between knowing and doing. And so the last thing really that I want us to see here today is that we then have to obey his word. We have to obey his will. God's will is consistent with his word. I'm going to give you three short examples just from scripture. This is not all of them, but just in the Bible, we know we have God's written word. And in it, he tells us what the will of God is. You want to know what God's will is? Let me tell you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First thing he says right there, you want to know the will of God? Then be a person of gratitude. Give thanks in all circumstances. Change your viewpoint, the way you see things in the world. Be a person of gratitude. Secondly, here's another one, 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God. It doesn't negate the other one, but here's another one. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's the will of God for your life? That you do good things in this world. He doesn't call you to go hide away somewhere on an, an uninhabited island in the South Pacific with really good waves all around it. That's not what he's calling you to. <laughs> Instead, he says, go, do good works. Third, here's another one. And like I said, this isn't all of them, but here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's the third will of God for your life? Holiness. That you'd be a person that honors God with your own body and your own mind and how you live your life. Holiness. Guys, we can become people who are walking in the will and the way of God. It's not some magical thing that only a few special saints ever figure out how I can actually walk in the will of God. No, 
He's written it down for you. But first, we've got to put ourselves in his hand, surrender our will, and then obey the things that he shows us. And if you're doing those things, you will be walking in the will of God. And when we're in the will of God, that's when we begin to experience the life that we want and that he has for us.